Welcome to Movie Reviews and Some Serious Nonsense, a podcast from the alternate universe with your hosts, Greg Dyro and Tom Burka. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Donnie Norden, along with Steve Bingen. We'll be talking about Donnie's book, Hole in the Fence, about his adventures on the MGM lot in Culver City in the early 60s and mid-70s. And then Hole in the Fence is my first book of what will take three to tell you all the stories that we lived growing up here. Three monster books. I will have a link. I will have a link in the notes to uh, your Facebook page so we can get to that. And obviously a link to the Amazon page where you can see the book. It's all Hollywood. Yeah, you'll like it. Well, no, I've, I've been scrolling through it. It is just amazing. I have to tell you, fascinating, Thank you. and you. I appreciate you got that. It. I'm very proud of it. It's. I kind of thought you guys should talk to Donnie because he kind of had the childhood that I think we probably wanted. You know, I literally did. I, I truly am blessed, and I've. Uh, we carried on from Culver City as soon as we get driver's license to, to the Valley, so this never ended. And then I got a career. I, I've worked in the movie industry for 33 years. Full access pass at Universal. So this never ended. This grown up, uh, <laughs> this infatuation with this industry. It started MGM and Culver City here, but I, I was able to live it. I live my dreams. So you're advocating breaking and entering. Yeah, I to get into I'll it. tell you what, the, the way the world is today, you could never do what I did. It's it, This is just what it is. I was just looking at Sony and they have monitors on their fence from post to post. <laughs> so they can actually, if you try to climb their wall, you set off a thing. The times have changed. You could not do anything. What I did. Um, obviously. You were telling us, Donnie, that you lived right next to MGM, you know, and. Uh, I'm actually, this interview today is from the house I grew up in. I inherited it and I'm back here. It's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful place to write and be right now. Excellent. Well, before you first broke in to MGM, uh, you must have, <laughs> yes. you know, st stood next to the fence and tried to see what you could see. Could you describe kind of the, the glimpses oh, yes. that you've got? Yes. And, and, and I'm glad you said it that way. So, so once I heard combat was being made just over there, I, I'm like four, but it's a different time. So my friends are a year or two older. So we're able to ride our bikes and go to the old green fence, which is what my cover simulates is what the fence looked like in my book. Wow. Mm -hmm. And what we would do is ride around the lot, peek through the little holes. There were holes everywhere. And it was almost like a, um, a TV set. It was like you'd look through the hole. In fact, when I'd go to school, I had to pass the MGM fences every day. And I'd leave an hour early just to look in the holes in the fence uh, to see, just to imagine where, where these streets continue on. Because we didn't know. We could only tell through this little hole what we, uh, we could only imagine. But it's interesting because I had a... I, I love combat rap patrol, all the shows uh, uh, that, that the war shows in particular. So I carried a rap patrol lunch pail with me to school. And mm -hmm. on the way to school, I often saw that the transportation, the Jeeps and the half track and everything at the main gate at MGM. So I would <laughs> hold my lunch pail. that's rap patrol to the fence and, and just like, there's you guys, this is it. I like to say I lived my lunch pail to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, I, could you get glimpses of actually identifiable kind of iconic tiny parts of recognizable television shows and that kind of thing? Or well, uh, was it just a blur? Well, as, uh, let's say it this way. The green fence couldn't contain that back lot. It's, it was actually comical. You uh, it bare, you had the trees, the buildings were four to five stories. You, you, could, you, you could not live in this city and pass that lot without imagining what could be inside and and understand the fence can't contain the sound so sound carried over to this this property all the time uh 
as we go farther in the stories, in 1976, they did King Kong over there, mm-hmm. and you could hear everything from Kong. And, and in 77, we did Sergeant Pepper with Frampton and the Bee Gees, and the music carried over to here. You live, living here, you live the lot. It's really an extension of the back lot, especially in the day, because there wasn't that many houses separating uh, the back lot and this house. It was built in 1920, my house, so it's as old as the studio, if not older. And um, so so you you have the whole ambiance living here. I, I had to force myself to go to sleep during King Kong because I had to go to school. And it was very difficult because you could hear the natives chanting Kong and all this. And, and I didn't I I wanted to be there, and I often was. And my actual Kong stories, which I have 31 amazing King Kong stories, will be in my second book. Um, because my books will encompass 10 years of trespassing. Uh, mm-hmm. MGM Lot 3, MGM Lot 2, and the Desilu Ranch. And then, it, um, it, like I said, when we got driver's license, we ended up going out to... Uh, the valley and hitting all those studios and we were really proud of ourselves because we had Culver city so wired we went out there thinking we'll show them and it was so easy it became apparent that the valley doesn't get tested like Culver city does mm-hmm. and uh, our guys were pretty professional i'm going to tell you mgm uh, carried weapons they uh a lot of them are ex-police or law enforcement and they they meant business and they didn't want you in there. So all my stories had the feeling there's uh, to have these stories, you had to experience, you had to risk things. I mean, there's a chance you're going to get, uh, you could end up with slivers in your hand. You could twist an ankle. You could get shot at. You could be chased. You could be arrested. There, the whole plethora of what could happen is, uh, is, it's almost like part of the fun, the adrenaline of that we don't belong here, but we're coming here because it's just too good to be true. Uh, yet a lot of kids didn't do it. A lot of kids really. I have a yeah. quick question, Donnie, uh, uh, for our for our listeners and online. Yeah. Do you have Do you have some maps that kind of kind of show? That we could put on our website, well, to kind of show the various MGM lots and approximately what we're talking about back back in 1963, yeah. 64 that you were looking. Well, at. let me tell you this. Uh, so, so the beauty of what I do is before the internet, and so we didn't have the luxury of uh, googling and finding out what was here and the names of these streets. So when right. we when we explore, we named everything ourselves and makes it even better. Yes, I have maps. I drew my own at school. I, I I would sit in the back of the class and be totally lost. I just wanted to be at the studio. So I I have drawn maps that I did. And if you compare them to nowadays maps that you can get on the internet, they are so, so accurate. And this is just me sitting in school using my own daydreaming. Yeah, yeah. And they're mm-hmm. dead on accurate. And then I even have a chase list. So not only do I lay you out on the back lot, every street from above, so you can see, then I do it in red so you can see. And you're just going to see nothing but red marks going every direction because <laughs> the chase is just that many. I've so, got the official um, studio maps, by the way, if you want to compare and contrast too. Oh, you yeah, that, it would be kind of fun. Oh, well, I can come up with that. It's actually, I think, in my book. And I, um, I have maps of Desilu and MGM that I made myself that are highly accurate. And they're uh, they're special to me. So so to answer your question, understand because I don't know what age you guys are. It was a different time, and there's no internet. There's no which uh, you're an explorer. It's like uh, the Lewis and Clark. It's like me and my friend Jimmy. We're Lewis and Clark, and we're exploring mm-hmm. land that looks like the the Oregon frontier, so so to speak. And we we had to do this on our own. It was a different time. And what I also love about that is like when, when King Kong was done here, that was a mechanical King Kong. That isn't a CGI world. My world at MGM was mechanical. It was old school. 
there was very little CGI done. Right, practical, practical effects, yeah. So, so it's the real deal. When when King Kong was brought in, I, I watched King Kong get made. It took months and months, and um, and finally, when it was ready to come on the lot, it was, was like this was it. They needed to have these shots with a big monkey. It was more publicity than anything. When they brought it in, it was an amazing thing. I just happened to be on the lot the day here it comes, and it came in in an armada with a with security all around it, and it was covered and. It went. It came in like a 747. In other words, they had to calculate what roads to go down so it could make it clear the buildings because the roads, some of them were narrow. And then it gets deposited at the at the uh, at the gates at Skull Island. And that whole armada went back to get the uh, more the second half because it came in sections. So it was the bottom half got there first. The second half as they went to get it. My friends and I ran over to to the set where they just left this because they all left it and we went inside it. So it was only delivered. It was only sitting there for less than five minutes and we were inside it. And it was fascinating because it's like a fuselage of an airplane. Uh, and mm -hmm. then it's all hydraulic hoses everywhere inside. And you could walk all the way to the toes. And and oh, no. and, and I don't know what you think, but we, we actually... Part of the 70s was was experimental drugs. So we always were partying in there. And so when we did that, we, we we smoked. We just wanted to smoke a joint inside King Kong to say we did. And as we exited, we grabbed handfuls of hair and headed out back home. And, <laughs> and, and all the kids, because we were very popular. When we came down the street, most kids come home with school books. And I came home with props. <laughs> that was quite the thing. And I mean, I always had props. I, I was a I ended up with Hogan Cheryl's tree stump, and that's one of the most amazing. Oh, uh, the tree stump, really? Yeah, yeah. And I had to take it on a steel wheel cart. They were tearing down Stalag 13 to build to film another show called The Fortune. And uh, what was sad is the day I, they were doing this, I went in there with a camera to actually really document Stalag 13. So I was, I was decimated that they tore it down without me getting the pictures i wanted and the first thing oh, i thought geez. of okay i want i want because the camp was gone but there was still things off to the side the labor department was doing and i saw mm -hmm. the dog houses and i wanted one of those but the laborers were taking them and the only thing left was a tree house or the tree stump and and it was quite a project to get it home and uh, to push it across the city because that that studio is farther away so so I had to push this tree stump on a cart. We had to cross two major boulevards, and we were thinking, oh, shit, I wonder what these people are thinking, looking at us, this tree stump, as we have to wait at a red light, and we're just praying that it's not a cop sitting there. There was no security there at that time? Uh, there should have been, because it, they were building another set. This wasn't that the Desi Lou that was getting crumbled. It was still real good. It hadn't been, the word wasn't out that you could go in here and do whatever. Uh, so, so there wasn't security for that moment because technically they were in strike zone, meaning they're striking a set. Once the show comes in with all the new wood and all the saws and all the, you're going to get security. And and I think there was one that day, but they there was really nothing to guard. Yeah, they didn't care at Hollywood that point because they were taking a it. Way of not, yeah, they're taking it down. Well, right. That's what I was going to say. Hollywood doesn't seem to care about. Hogan's heroes, they throw so much stuff in the trash, it, it'll appall you. So so they don't look at it as incredible movie history. It's like served its purpose and it's it's worthless. And uh, th that's an interesting thing because Hollywood is its own worst enemy. And it's thrown out more stuff than, than you can believe. So do you still have, do you still have your stump? No, that what happened with the stump is we played with it. So this stuff I bring home, we play with. And it was very popular. Every kid in the world played in it. So the lid came off. And then, um, and then so it, it's uh, like a composite material with framed in wood. And mm -hmm. it's, it was an outdoor um, prop anyway. So it, it was at Desi Lu for 10 years, rotting, basically. Uh, you know, when they build all this stuff, they don't even know if the show's going to be a hit. 
So they don't build stuff to last. They just like do it as cheap as possible. And if it works, good. So under so there's that there's that part of Hollywood that people don't understand. Everything's done kind of cheap, and you don't know when you're starting a pilot that the show's gonna be iconic. You don't know it. Uh and and so the tree stump had pre-aging before I got it, but it was in good shape. Right. It lasted a long time. And then when I moved out of this house for 40 years and raised my family and was elsewhere, my parents threw out so much cool stuff you would not believe it. All my <laughs> soiling grain, uh, signs with bullet holes all in them, a bar, uh, just everything that was it, it, they didn't appreciate, or they did. My parents liked what Wait I a did. Minute. You had Soylent Green in your house? Oh, yeah. Oh, Soylent Green, I got it up. It's funny you say that because here's the call sheet. I have all these call sheets, too. I collected everything. Like, uh -huh. Stephen Ding uh -huh. is asking me, did you have Soylent Green? I'm showing him. I'm giving him the call sheet right now. You're, you're eating it. Yeah. You're eating it right now. You're eating Soylent Green right now. <laughs> it's people, Danny. It's people. <laughs> so it's actually... It's painted in red and so green, and it's just dope painted. And so that was my first chase was on soil and green. I was taking a bunch of kids to give them a tour, like three different schools involved uh -huh. with kids. So we had like ten kids, and I thought soil and green had been was done because they were already shooting for a couple of weeks. Right. So we go in on this Saturday, and we get to the set on New York Street. And we walk in, and there's tons of soil and green. They just filmed the riot scene where where uh -huh. uh, they were rioting. There's not enough soil and green, so it's all in the buildings. We load up, so I got all these kids, and they want these soil and green souvenirs. We have them, and, and we we load up, and then as we walk out the front of the theater, there's a guard coming in the red Bronco. That's generally what they use to secure the lot with, and he sees us, and the chase is on, and this was. This was actually the wildest, one of the wildest chases I've ever been on. And this was very early in the game. Mm -hmm. And what happened was we all start running to the fence. Everybody's following me because no one knew the lot other than one other friend. And so everybody's following me like a puppy dog, puppy dogs. And we're being chased. And, and I'm headed to the fence. I'm faster than everybody and Pat, my friend, cuts on a side street, which is uh, the Lord's home. Stephen knows it. It's in his book. And mm -hmm. the guard went after him instead of all of us. And the next thing you know, <laughs> were three gunshots. And it was louder than heck. And it scared the pants out of everybody there. And and uh, I had already got to the fence when I heard the gunshots. He was shooting at Pat. And all my all these kids that I was giving a tour couldn't couldn't climb they were that scared it was a scary moment so i uh, but fortunately for those kids the guard went after one guy and left these nine mm -hmm. other kids he could have caught nine people had he had done the right move and he didn't catch pat so we get i get all these kids out of there i get them home i come over here they all leave they never want to come back to mgm again that was enough <laughs> they got soil and grain and then i'm just so all these bicycles leave my driveway it was like like a really important day and then everybody takes off, and there's only one bicycle left, and it's Pat. So I wait for him to get home to get here. And I go, so what just happened? And he and it was so funny. I give him uh, ice-cold Hawaiian punch. We sit down, and we go, what? He couldn't believe that the guard singled him out with all that mm -hmm. group of people, which I agree with. So we would take the, the next thing. We would go to the, the um, gates, the, the, the guard shacks on the main lot. And talk to guards. So we were friends with a lot of guards. Right. And we were enemies with other guards. It depended on who took their job seriously and who, who had what. <laughs> and, and we were able to find out the name of the guard that shot at, at us. And the car he drives. We got all the information you could ever have imagined on, on this individual, which his name was Bob Coleman. He's a MGM veteran. And he hated me. Uh, and he <laughs> took and then they hired a guy that lives the block over from me. He was, he's like six, nine, 270 pounds. He was too big to be a Culver city cop, but he ends up getting an MGM guard job. And his, his purpose is to catch me. And it took him a while. It took about a year and a half, half of every day I'm in there. And he finally did catch me. And it was kind of funny. 
because he paraded me around uh, the main lot in handcuffs. I felt like a celebrity. I was being walked everywhere. He wanted to make sure everybody saw me that I was captured. Yeah, yeah. And it was really cool. So then they, they brought me to the main security, finally called my dad and explained the dangers of being on a back lots and why you shouldn't be there. And my dad knew I snuck on and my, my dad is, uh, but he played the part well. And he, and he said, that's terrible. And we won't let him. And then it, oh yeah, he let me off on the back lot, but we didn't even go back home. He just let me off. And cause I had to go back inside and get something. So it was, it, yeah. my parents were in on this. My, and, and, but the thing is, I love the place. My mom bought me the first VCR ever. Glad she didn't buy a beta. She bought a VCR. Mm -hmm. It weighed about a, 150 pounds it was so big so because she knew i wanted to see these shows and record them and look at them forever and, and so that was a really expensive thing she did for me there on top of buying me a fancy camera that if you read my book and you read the waltons 1975 uh -huh. we go to warner brothers on um was it christmas day or new year's day and we own the lot. There's no one there. And I have my brand new camera. And so, um, hold on one second. So oh, we, we explore the lot. I mean, we, we are now, I'm taking pictures all over the Warner Brothers lot. The first picture, though, I take, I'm up on Laramie Street, the bank, mm -hmm. up on the roof. And I'm by myself. My friends, we, I got three guys, but we're all doing something different. And as I take the picture, the roof caves in and there's no what? floor underneath. Uh, so I am dangling over three stories high. And if this breaks, I'm going through it. And so I'm like caught in quicksand. I don't know what move to make. And the only reason I didn't fall all the way through is my camera was uh, strapped around me and it kept me from falling all the way through. And and I like was so scared to, I didn't know how I was going to get out of this. But finally, I was able to get back on the roof. And I still got the pictures of the pictures in the book. It's a beautiful uh -huh. shot of the Warner Brothers street. And right after the picture, I went through the roof. And it's so funny because um, Tammy Kotler of uh, the Waltons, she's the little Elizabeth Walton, read that story and she loved it. So she asked permission, can I share it with all the cast of the show? And it turns out I had a couple other Walton stories we passed on and we've become friends. And so she's actually wrote uh, wrote on my book uh, a funny uh, acknowledgement, and, uh, and and the Walton story is one of the better stories you'll ever read. And that was just it was a two. We left the um, that studio to go to Disney, and we had a chase. Oh my god, that camera! Then the guard. <laughs> if you want to hear the story, you want to read it. I can tell you the Disney story, and it'll blow you away. It's the same uh -huh. day. We go. So, so wait, wait, wait a minute. Just Warner's for our listeners, for our listeners, for our listeners, the yeah. the 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 Warner lot is is right next to the Disney lot. Essentially, I mean, it's not very far away. Exactly that, so. and it's not too far from the Columbia Ranch and Universal Studios. So, so they're all they're all neighborhoods, so to speak. So we we go to the Disney Ranch next, or the Disney Disney Studio. And we climb a chain link fence. We're real good at that with barbed wire on the top. Nothing we haven't done. We were a little bit unimpressed by the lot. There wasn't much there. Oh, by the way, on the Walton set, we drove a car. We drove one of the Walton's cars. And yeah. we while <laughs> I was falling while I was falling through the building, my friend Pat was going through the cars and they had keys in them. And then he opened the trunk. You should have seen it. I looked down and all four doors open and the trunk. And and my friend Jimmy's taking pictures. Pat's like going through these cars and 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 he owns a trunk and there's there's costumes in them, hats and coats. So we all dress up in costume and we start driving no. this car and it's a stick shift. And I didn't know how to drive a stick shift. So I was a little bit scared, but I wasn't scared of a guard. I was scared of, a, of, of this uh, learning how to drive this car. So we all took turns driving it around. There was no security on this Christmas day. There were no mm. So we drove down oh, every wow. street. We even went down New York Street over there and parked in an alley, trying to be conspicuous, like we're not really. And then we went, we, we didn't, but once you're at the New York Street, you're too close to the uh, main offices. So you don't want to be over there. 
So we we kept the car. We only cruised it once. Then we went back over to the Western streets, the jungle. And so when it's my turn to drive the car, I I was losing control of it. And, and I almost crashed into the Walton's house. I was going really fast and I and, and it stalled out and it came just short of the porch. And it was <laughs> like the car was saying, can you guys just go now? And it was like, it was, it was that. And um, so that was an involved thing at Warner Brothers, one of the greatest things, but we're not done yet. So I take my camera. Uh, I, I just want to shoot all these studios. We go over to the Disney. We're unimpressed by the lot. But we want to find Herbie's love bug because we just drove a car over at Warner Brothers. And now we want to see if we can do it at Disney. But there, that opportunity didn't present itself. We didn't like the lot was not that good. It's not really a back lot type of studio. And as, so we're going about to leave. And here comes a guard on a three wheel cart. And we were just starting to climb out. But to climb these <clears throat> ceiling fences with barbed wire, mm -hmm. you can't you can't all three guys climb at once. Cause it'll shake you and, and, and you'll mess up. So uh, there's a lot of ways to get hurt here. So, so I was the last one and I had to watch this guard get closer and closer. And I'm telling my friends, hurry up. Cause I need to go over and the, and the guard's saying, stop. And I'm saying, hurry up. And so now it's my turn and the guards right here. And, and so I, I'm, I got over the fence. I got on the top. I was pivoting off the pole right as the guard off the barbed wire uh, that holds the there's, uh -huh. a, there's an arm that holds three strands of barbed wire. I'm on top of that pivoting and throwing my body over and I, and at, right as the guard is reaching up for me and the fence snaps it snaps there. So my camera breaks and falls into the lot the strap breaks and the guard picks it up and he goes you fucker you gotta sorry you gotta come uh -huh. back now I got your camera and that camera had film from Warner Brothers of the car, so that my that camera is loaded with good pictures, and and so and the guard's arm is bleeding because he got stuck in the barbed wire, so he's bloody, he's pissed, he's cussing me out, and I look and and, and so now we turn to each other, we're on the public street, and I go, hey, I gotta give up, I gotta go back, and the guard's right there, and it's a chain link fence, so he's listening, and we're all like together, and I go, I'm going back. And my friend, Pat, the guy that goes through the cars, he goes, I'm going with you, Donnie. I'm going to go back with you. So, Because he didn't have to. I I was just going to give up and th those guys could go home. And so Pat gives up with me and Jimmy drives home. That's that. And so now I have to go to security and turn myself in <laughs> and turn myself, give up, give it in. And so I want my camera. And, the, and I go, so we're where's my camera they, they call my parents obviously so i'm going to be there an hour waiting for my parents to arrive oh jeez! and they they I'm in, a, I'm in a office that's like a converted bathroom i was not impressed by the head of security and it was a woman for for disney that day and she goes so what are yeah. you doing here and i said oh we're so taking some pictures and she goes you just can't come in here to take pictures so so she took my camera when the guard shows up they they go through my camera they take out the film and had they looked at the film it wasn't their lot it was warner brothers and it was really good pictures of the car so 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 they take my film they call my parents and in the meantime she says go sit in the guard sack and i become friends with the guards out there and it was really fun to talk to them and and look at and, and to tell them the stories about what we do in culver city and they don't have anything like that going on out there so they kind of, they were eating out of my hand. It was really funny to sit in there and talk these stories. And then my parents pull up and they're old Impala and I get to operate the gate arm and let them in and, and pick me up and shoot me out of there. Um, and that's all one day. That was just like a Christmas day or a New Year's day. I forget. Which oh my goodness. That's crazy. Well, this is what we did all the time. This is, this is a day in the life. This is really what it is. Uh, and we'd have a lot more Valley Studio discussions here if had I lived there. But we just stayed out here, uh, mm -hmm. and we did we we did this these lots here, inside out, upside down. I had forts. I had a fort that had a phone in one of them in a saloon at Desilu. We we moved a rolling phone because they're all over the lot. <laughs> they, they dial off lots. So we made a, we made a fort. We had our own phone, and then we'd start calling. People 
uh, just at random. And we would tell them where we're at and act like we're producers and ask them if they want to be in a movie. It was like we milked this for everything we could do. Um, and that worked out for like a month before they actually took the phone back. <laughs> I think the phone bill was rather high. Um, uh, and that's what we do. And we had like five forts. I had a Fort Nandy Griffiths house up in the upstairs. And I've met Ron Howard. I worked on The Grinch and we talked Desi Lou. And he loves Desi Lou. He loves his heritage. I can tell you this. He's got the most seniority as a kid on uh, Desi Lou lot, but I'm second. I, I've got, yeah. I've probably, got, I've got six years. He's got at least 10. Uh, he grew up there. And so we talked about his memories and he has a lot. He said, I had just brought my daughters over to the, to show him where Mayberry was. So he, he bought into this right away. He wrote the introduction for my book and he said he drives his wife crazy because all he wants to do is talk about that old studio he worked at. That's, that's a fantastic. There you are. And he was so, uh, so warm to me. And it was funny because while that show was going on, he's a director. And there's mm -hmm. a best boy on the show named Monty Menapis. He's since passed away. And Monty kept going, Donnie, you've got to tell Ron Howard your stories. You have to go over there and tell him. And I, I'm a professional. I work there. i do not going to just do that. You have to have the right time. And the right time presented itself. I was at a craft service table. And here comes Ron Howard standing right next to me. And I, I just turned. I go, Ron, did you enjoy growing up at Desilu as much as I did? And he looked at me puzzled because that's a weird way to break the ice. But I, then I right. started talking to him and I snuck in a lot all the time. And, and then we warmed up and, and we sat at that table talking for 10 minutes and he's a director. Probably cross-production. <laughs> exactly. But, but the guys on the, the Monty, it's, uh, Monty was so proud because I could see him looking at it and he was so proud that we we're having this discussion and Monty so he's a fascinating person. He, he retired after the Grinch, but he was a best boy on Andy Griffith. So he goes all the way back to Andy Griffith. And that's what was so charming about this. And to show how cool Ron Howard was, he threw a retirement party for Monty uh, on mm -hmm. the stage when, when we wrapped out for um, Grinch. And that was a very – Ron Howard is a prince. He's one of the classiest gentlemen I've – I've ever met in that business. And, um, and I had a fortune's house. <laughs> so there you go. Just at the tip of the iceberg, you guys, it goes way. Well, let me ask tip. you a couple of things, Donnie. Um, five, five stars that you saw early on and your five favorite props that you got a hold of. Down. Yeah, well, that might not be too hard. So the, the Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire I met on That's Entertainment. I've got their autographs. But Gene Kelly gave me 10 minutes. He gave me as much time as I needed. I was with my friend, uh, Gerald. And he, so we met him at the main gate uh, right next to the Thalbert building. Uh, a guard, Ken Wood, said, hey, somebody's coming out here. He hands me a, uh, a pencil and paper. And he goes, you're going to want. So uh, first Fred is there, pulls up in a Rolls Royce, and uh, we're just standing at the guard check. And so he's nice enough to roll the window down and sign. The next one's Gene Kelly. And he's driving an old, like, 67 Impala, like dented. It's like you, this is like, I didn't even think it was a star. I had to look twice. I didn't, so he's like incognito. And so he right. pulls out. He goes, let me pull out over here. You be careful. He pulls out and gets out of the car and sits down, sits on the hood, and we talk to him as much as you'd want to talk. So I start with, um, oh, God, what did I say? I go, what What was your favorite show that you did? Um, and he goes, well, I'm going to surprise you. It's not a musical. It, it was, um, and then he let me try to guess. And I was going to, I already know his two non-musicals were, uh, were The Black Hand and um, Three Musketeers. And, and I was going to say Three Musketeers, but he beat me to it. He goes, the Three Musketeers was my favorite film because he got to uh, the the swordsmanship and all the stuff he learned. And, and he's just a natural, like an acrobat. So that was his favorite show, and and which I found interesting. And then I said, hey, Gene, you know, when it rains, we go over to the set, the street where Singing in the Rain was filmed, and we sing singing in the rain and we get and we we pretend we're you 
<laughs> and I go, and but mostly we just splash in the puddles. And and he turned and gave me the most gracious big white tooth smile that he's famous for. And you could tell that we we touched a beautiful nerve in him. Uh, I'll never forget it. I'll, obviously, I won't. So there's two stars, Fred and Gene. I met Ricardo Montalban. So we're talking the MGM heavies. I met him on mm -hmm. Fantasy Island. And um, as he arrived on the set in a Chrysler Cordoba, I ran up to mm. him and said, Ricardo, <laughs> I just wanted to meet you so bad. And I want you to know my mom bought this exact car because you sold it. <laughs> so so that was a fun one. Um, yeah, let's see who. Uh, and, and so we're talking trespassing as opposed to me. Me, no, just me. just your your. It can be any any. Because I've met everybody at yeah. Universal. It's not even a fair question. I've met any everybody. big star. I've any star with that you, yeah, yeah. So Universal doesn't count. We'll stick. We'll stick. Trespassing. Um. So so <laughs> there's three guys right there. Uh, Roddy McDell. So there's a fourth MGM heavyweight on Planet of the Apes. Oh. He was so cordial. He loved us. He he. Uh, that, that was a wild set. You just got to read about it. I can't even explain it. It was a week of stuff on the back lot at MGM. And and it word spread like wildfire in Culver City that the apes are in there. And every kid in the neighborhood snuck in there. It turned into a problem. Kids, There were so many kids coming in and out of buildings that they walked in front of the camera on certain shots. And, and so they wanted us out of there. <laughs> I was actually legally on there. I had a pass. It's a long story. Uh, I had a pass because my dad knew somebody that offered me. But once MGM found out it was me, they weren't allowing that pass to happen because when <laughs> it was lunchtime. It was like day two of my official pass. And I was wearing Urko's helmet and A-pans when the guard showed up on the set. And he looked at me like, and I go, hey, hey, I'm here legally. And, and and obviously I'm standing in costume, I'm wearing ape stuff. And, and so he went, he he got so pissed. He went to every big shot on the show to finally say, this guy does, you don't want him here. And so they finally, he got succeeded. And they, they revoked my pass and walked me out the gate. I was so despondent because I love the show. <laughs> but all we did is walk around the corner and climb back in. And so it was like, you're not keeping us from this. But, but I was going to say, Roddy McDell was so kind to all the kids. He has a heart of gold for kids because he he started walking in the buildings and saying, come down, and then took them onto the set, and he's powerful enough that they can stay. They're with me. And and he's, so every kid's now got a Planet of the Apes memory thanks to Roddy McDell. And it happened a couple times because it happened on New York Street, and then it happened again over at the train station on some scenes where it was really cute on that one because – the best angle was actually not being on the lot for us. It would be looking over the fence. So we all went and got ladders and we set up on the train tracks, all these different ladders. <laughs> so you had about 10 people with these different things to stand on looking over the fence and everybody saw us, uh, all the stars and they were waving to us. So they filmed their scenes and then come over and start talking to us. And Roddy does all kinds of monkey business stuff with the, the kids. And those are, those are precious, priceless memories uh as is uh with stars and those are the mgma list by the way that's what was really neat about who i just described there is those Excellent. are the throwback amazing. guys um and amazing um as far as props definitely the hogan service tree goes a long way at of uh, being the greatest and the adventure to get it home is fascinating um soil and grain so you you've heard two already uh let's see I, I, gee, I've got stuff from King Kong that's beyond belief, and I don't think I'm going to share it with you at this moment. It's not the place, trust mm -hmm. me. Meaning, mm -hmm. fair it's, enough. It's it's extreme stuff uh, that that you, uh, I have to run it by people. So so it's um, King Kong is a special thing, and it, I have a story about the making of Kong. Several stories that just defy. They really are where I peak at my expertise at at taking over a studio, basically, because MGM had just left, turned it over. When Kong was made, it was made. Uh, MGM was no longer the owner. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, a developer bought the lot and was renting it back to the studios at a ridiculously high rate. 
So the developer was able to was able to get the lot for free because he rented back the studio for a year to King Kong. Then they rented it to a year of Sergeant Pepper. Those are huge shows. They were the biggest shows made those two years, 76, 77. They were just that big. In fact, Sergeant Pepper rebuilt all small town square. So when people like to say the lot was uh, falling down, it was worthless. In some ways it was, but it only takes one good charge number to fix something. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how it works. And I, so I saw a decimated lot be rebuilt and look beautiful. Uh, so I saw this in every which way, shape or form. So another star, by the way, would be uh, the Peter Frampton. So we met Frampton and the Bee Gees, Billy Preston, Earth, Wind and Fire. I was on that show every day. I've got tremendous pictures of it. it wow. And it was the 77. It was a peak time of a lot mm-hmm. of stuff like drug use and cocaine, not just the kids, the the stars, <laughs> the stars had their problems then too. Um, so I, I um, don't believe it. I don't believe any of these stars ever touched drugs. <laughs> well, I guarantee the rock stars did. I guarantee the rock stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, that group did. Um, and then the final show. Peter Frampton yeah. had white powder under his nostrils. Peter, it was Peter Frampton coming alive, Tom. That's the. <laughs> oh, he, oh, so you just said the right thing. I'm sure that was from a powdered donut. Well, yeah. Stuff. No, this 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 Peter Frampton coming alive and the Bee Gees stay, uh, Saturday Night Fever is why they were put together. They just had the two biggest selling albums of all time. They're on top of the world. They don't even know. I mean, Peter, right after this show, his career went way downhill. He crashed. Uh, he got a divorce. He had a serious crash that he had to re- rehab. He had to rehab from. So Peter's career uh, went way down right after Sergeant Pepper. Almost everybody's career did uh. from that show. What I've done is shoot past book one, which is what I should have just focused on. But right. I want to give you the overall because I wanted this all to be one book, but it's too much. It's too many pages. They're all going to be about 400 pages. So they're beasts. And I got pictures. I got all this. So the book in question, Hole in the Fence, uh, part one, is right. is just the innocent kid stories. They're pretty darn innocent at this point. So understand we're coming of age is what we're doing with with our life here. And then I have a girlfriend that goes with me everywhere. And, and the guards love her. So she gets privileges. And then they want to shoot me. So that turns into a fun and game. And, and she come, becomes very proficient. She lives right across the street. So she her bedroom looks right into the train station. We watched some young Frankenstein from her bedroom. And we were jumping up and down on her bed and waving. And they were awake because you can see right in. It, it, it's really special how the neighborhood is inclusive to the studio it's mm-hmm. it's it's it just made it a natural thing for all of us donnie let me stop you you've mentioned forts a couple of times and you said uh, mm-hmm. uh what you mean is you found places that you could hole up and go in and out of and keep your stuff in is that right <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad you asked the question because I, I take for granted. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. What 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 we would do is what has to happen in a fort. So you know, you have to have a, a alternate escape. It can't be one way up, one way down. You don't want that. So you got to have an alternate ending here in case you get get f- flooded or forced out of there. So we had forts all over, but the best fort, and I have many pictures in my book. Uh, was up in a place called Girls Town, the girls' school at MGM. We called it Boys Town because we didn't want to give girls credit, so we call it Boys Town. Uh, but what we would do was move stuff around, so you could get furniture out of uh, houses. They had a like they'd always have an entry table and a picture on a wall, a little carpet. We'd grab that stuff, and then we also took a water bottle, a water jug thing from a work crew. Put that up there, and we were real proud of that because it's nice to have something to drink when you're on a dirty, dusty top <laughs> rafter. Jeez. And we also tried to pick the buildings that had the views the farthest distance. So, uh, and this, this particular girls' town school overlooked Tarzan Lake, and it and uh, from the backside and the front side looked all the way down to the ocean and my house. You could see all that stuff. It was one of the higher views on the lot. So, what I want to point out here is. On the TV show Phantom of Hollywood, 
uh, which was actually first titled Phantom of the uh, of Lot Two, I believe, uh, Phantom mm-hmm. of the Back Lot. Uh, the the uh, CBS when they aired it wanted it to be Phantom of Hollywood. They wanted the Hollywood stigma, not uh, Back Lot. But the point is, this movie about a phantom, and I met Jack Cassidy, there's another actor that you asked for, uh, on this set, and it was so cool because I the guards were calling me the phantom before they made this show. That So I was called the phantom, and now they're making this show <laughs> called The Phantom of the Back Lot, but it gets better. Two kids die from where my fort was. So they fall from the top where they fall the from. Movie. Yeah, yeah, and Broderick Crawford points up there. And and that and and he says just two two teenage long haired punks. Oh, that's kind of described us. We're <laughs> at our fort because we had long hair. We're teenagers, and and they this is is this coincidental or they're picking my fort? Two teenage boys die, and then the head of Peter Lawford's in the scene. Broderick Crawford. And I forget the third one, but he comes up and he goes, John Ireland. Yeah. 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 He goes, you can't fence. It's curiosity. You can't fence it out. And that, that, that should capture the whole, that is the truest line ever said in a movie. You cannot fence this, this, this out. Uh, and, and that was dead on my, uh, that was too similar to me. I'm, I'm saying, uh, there's more to that than meets the eye. You you don't pick that fort by accident. You don't fall from there. You don't use that line. Two teenage long haired punks. Uh, it, it's it's because uh, I was already well established on that lot when they came and did that. It was, it was clearly a message. I a think message. so. I, I totally and, and to have seen Jack Cassidy and, and to be point blank with him, and he's in costume, so he had that mask on, and he had that that steel ball in his hand. <laughs> then he just looks at me and waves real nicely. And I felt so important and so connected. Uh, and I also was like, I, I was proud because I'm seeing too many similarities. This is like about me. And the guards called me the Phantom. So I, I, I wanted to point out that show because it's truly, and I have a call sheet from it. It's truly, I've got so many good call sheets. Yeah, Frank, it's a, it was truly a magic moment. Um, and I, and I'm trying to establish that I, I, fact is stranger than fiction. You figure this out. That, that seems like there's a connection, uh, as too many things there. It's almost like I lived the twilight zone. And and one of the things I used to do was sneak in. One real last thing. One of the things we used to do was sneak in with a little black and white television set and then watch the reruns in the buildings where they were shot, especially the twilight (laughs) zone. Especially the Twilight Zone. So what? So then you got this black and white screen, and then you have the color outside, uh, the, the real natural color. Because like when they did Young Frankenstein, we saw it in color, and then you go to the theater, it's in black and white. So it's kind of a trip uh, when you when you do these things. So so we lived this thing as much as we could live it, and we tried to tie the past. Sure, I would have liked to have been older, meaning I could have seen combat in person there. But you always got to remember when you make a wish like that, all the ramifications that go with it. It's like a Twilight Zone episode with a genie that yep. if you want to be at that age, you're going to probably end up in Vietnam. So so in other words, watch what you wish for. I, I think looking back, I couldn't have been at a better time. Sure, I wanted to see combat, but instead I heard it and smelled it and blah, blah, blah. And uh, and I and saw the rap patrol things that I needed to see. Uh, so garrison's gorillas the whole decade was war that was my last post was mgm (laughs) the decade of the decade of war this is a perfect place for us to kind of kind of wrap up at this point uh, in in a twilight zone kind of mode here (laughs) we'll uh we'll we'll know you know we'll invoke a little bit of rod serling uh is this real or is this, you know, not real? Submitted for your you know? approval. Submitted, Submitted for your, for approval. your yes. approval. And uh, yeah. we, we, definitely, we definitely want to thank you, Donnie, and, and, and of course, Steve, for, for bringing us uh, Donnie uh, uh, the attention. <laughs> and we're, way, wanna, uh, we're overwhelmed. I want to thank you guys publicly for Stephen writing my forward, which is one of the most uh, eloquent, beautiful, touching forwards I've ever uh, – all my – Everybody that's read my book can't get over Stevens forward, and I want to thank him. He's here right now. I thank him so much, and um, 
I think we have a good thing going forward because our stuff counters each other very well. He, he's very documented and has all this stuff and I'm just boots on the ground running from stuff. And oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So the two come together really well. And so if you go to Amazon and look up Phantom of the Backlots Presents Hole in the Fence and you go down, mm-hmm. one of the books that's recommended, at least for me, is Hollywood's Lost Backlot by Steve Bingham. So well, of course I, I should be in it. Self-referential. <laughs> I wish he would have, uh, if he had known me, I would have been a player in that book. But I fell in love with him because of those books. And I couldn't wait to meet him. We'll definitely promote the book, uh, obviously, on, you know, once we we uh, we drop this episode and uh, hopefully uh, be, be, you know, sure to, uh, you know, pass this around to all your friends, Donnie, and we'll... Uh, we, we love the attention and hopefully it gets you a lot of attention for the book and, and may, and maybe that, that, that limited series on Netflix. Um, well, that's you know. truly where I think this would look wonderful. I, I do believe film would bring this out. I mean, you picture the seventies color, the music of the seventies, which I don't know if you're old enough to know what that was like, but it's, it's, it was, it's, there's nothing like it nowadays. And seventies, uh, if I had to write about a time, the seventies are the one. And, and yeah, Tom, Tom and I, Tom and I are definitely old enough to, to know, right, Tom? Good. Well, there yes, you are. Yes, we are. And, uh, yeah. and I, and I'm working on something now from the 1920s and you won't believe it. And we'll just let it go at that, but you'll want to come back for that because it's as big as anything that you can imagine. Uh, and we'll just, if you get it out of Steven, you get it out of Steven, you know, go to this. so, yeah. um, so well, thank you. Thank you. So guys thank you. Time. Thank you, Donnie. And no, uh, this I'm is sure excellent. We'll yep. Reconnect because I got so much. Oh, yeah, yeah for sure. We'll have for to sure. have you back sometime, Johnny. <laughs> okay. All right. You <laughs> Thank you. Thank I you, am. Donnie. Thank so you, Steve. Because I think podcast is a good way to go. You got it, my friends. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Excellent. Okay. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Movie Reviews and Some Serious Nonsense with Tom Burka and Greg Dyro. We love to talk about movies and speak with the creators of some of your favorite forms of entertainment. If you have a great idea for an interview, we would love to hear about your idea. If you have a favorite movie or a streaming show, real or not yet imagined, we'd love to hear about it. So please leave us a message on our website. This was an audio performance, copyright 2022 by King Dyro Productions.